I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance Podcast. My guest this episode is pianist Ethan Iverson. It's been a long time since I've done one of these. In fact, the last episode was released in December of 2022. I talked then to film critic Walter Chaw about his book on the work of director Walter Hill. Since then, a lot's been going on. Most notably, I wrote a book of my own. In the Brewing Luminous, the life and music of Cecil Taylor will be released this year. It's the first full-length biography and critical analysis of Taylor, who is not only a hugely important jazz musician, along with Ornette Coleman, Albert Eiler, and others, he was one of the pioneers of free jazz and really pushed the music forward in undeniable ways. But he's also, I believe, and argue in the book, a brilliant and under-recognized American composer whose work spans a much broader range than many people realize. Ethan Iverson is also a really interesting American composer. You could be reductive about it and call him a synthesist of old and new pop and jazz styles, but he has a strong and recognizable voice that becomes easy to hear the more of his music you listen to. There are chords and types of melodies that he favors that set him apart from his peers, and he's got a real attraction to big hooks, which manifested in the Bad Pluses work in a number of ways, and shows up in his solo work, too. The Bad Plus developed a reputation for piano trio covers of pop songs that people often seem to think were ironic, but were in fact performed from a perspective of real love for compositional form. A great tune is a great tune. And it's worth remembering that they also recorded Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which is an avant-garde landmark, but also has some really kick-ass and highly memorable melodies. After all, it was originally written for dancers. Ethan's new album, Technically Acceptable, is his second record for Blue Note, and he's doing some things on it that he's never done before. First of all, he's playing with two different rhythm sections that are made up of musicians more or less his own age. Until now, he's tended to record with older players, legends like Jack DeJeanette, Albert Tootie Heath, Billy Hart, Paul Motion, Ron Carter, etc. This is uh, his first time, post-Bad Plus, making an album entirely with musicians of his own generation. Also, it includes a solo piano sonata, three movements, 15 minutes, a through-composed classical piece that still manages to fit under the umbrella of jazz in a Gershwin meets Fats Waller kind of way. This album is a real showcase for him as a composer. Ethan and I talk about Cecil Taylor in the interview you're about to hear. We also talk about his own work and how it's evolved over the years, the economics of surviving as a jazz musician in the 21st century, and we talk about other piano players of his generation, like Jason Moran, Aaron Deal, Aaron Parks, Jeb Patton, and Sullivan Fortner. We talk about diving into the music's history, and about how there's as much to learn and draw from in the music of the 1920s and 1930s as in the music of the 1960s and afterward, and about the increasing movement toward composition in current jazz. This is his second time on the podcast. A couple of years ago, I interviewed him alongside Mark Turner when they'd made a duo album together. But this time, it's a one-on-one conversation, and I hope you'll find it as interesting as I did. How are you? Good, Phil. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. 
Hey, is your the first book on Cecil Taylor? Uh, the first full-length bio, yeah, yeah. It's incredible, uh, man! Congratulations. I think it's going to cause you know a storm probably, because fantastic. Uh, because I got in, I got some information. I got you know to talk to people about like what happened after he died and stuff like that. And there's a lot of like legal chaos, you know, because he died without oh. a will, you know, and, right? And didn't have any kids or anything, obviously. So like, it's you know, it's a whole thing. <laughs> so yeah let's start with the new record um how has your playing evolved since your last record what are you better at in 2023 well i certainly regard my playing composing and everything else as a process um, i turned 50 this year and there are many of my favorite musicians seem to know exactly what they were doing by 20 or 25 or 30. You know, 35, it starts to feel like you're getting old to be getting together. But I have to say, in all honesty, Bill, that I just at the beginning of sorting out a lot of my technique and concepts. So the last record with Jack DeJanet and Larry Grenadier you know, just in terms of dealing with the instrument and the compositional side of things, I think it's, it was the best I could do at the time, but honestly, I do think technically acceptable is better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The title's a, a, you know, it's, it's trying to be a joke. You know, it's, it's definitely self-deprecating. It, it's a quote from a book. Many of my titles are quotes from books, and I've been tr I've been debating going into this interview. Should I reveal the book in the quote? And I actually uh, just still don't have a hard ruling on it. But <laughs> uh, the purity of the turf with Ron Carter and Nasheep that was from P.G. Woodhouse. Mm -hmm. My my record with Lee Konitz, costumes are mandatory. That's a quote from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And now technically acceptable is from a very, very big bestseller, but I checked it and I can't really Google it easily. So I guess I'll leave it for a super fan to define on their own sometime. The first Bad Plus record was that kind of thing. These are the vistas. That was Reed Anderson's suggestion. And it was a line from American Movie, that documentary. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. And years later we get people saying oh my gosh is that from this movie because they they knew the record first and then they'd see the movie and it suddenly made sense right right okay okay well i don't know if you saw it but i made a joke about it on twitter i said you know the the new album the music is very good but the cover art is technically acceptable and <laughs> like i didn't see that Okay, well, the cover art to me for this album looks like a playlist on a streaming service. Like, is that what you were going for? Or was it not even up to you? Was this what Blue Note came up with? Or... Well, you know, I guess there is a point to having like a big picture of yourself. Just because everything is thumbnails now. Mm -hmm. You know. That's true. Yeah. I, I, I'm not handsome nor am i charismatic looking the last thing i'm is tough 
So like the big sort of tough photo of me, I think it's funny. <laughs> I, you know, for me, the, the cover is humorous. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, as you say, you you know, you turned 50 this year. You've been at this for 30 years because your first CD came out in 93. Right. So you've seen a lot of trends in jazz album art come and go. Which are your favorite covers from your own discography and which do you wish you could redo? That's a great question. Well, you know, the previous one was great with that art um you know with the, the record cover like it was like a L, L, little lp player i love that and the f early bad plus ones were good i like these are the vistas that was also some great original art um i traditionally like the ecm covers i'm a ecm fan but i will say um None of my own covers for ECM struck me as like the best ECM cover. <laughs> so, but I mean, they release so many records a year; they all are up to a certain standard, of course. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. there was uh, there was a period in the late '90s where certain labels, and I think I think Verve was the worst about this, was were just putting out terrible cover art for everybody, like five fonts per album cover you know and all this sort of like over designed kind of stuff like Roy Hargrove was really really ill served by album cover designers I feel like mm -hmm. <laughs> well you know it's a very important thing that you're raising um, because if you're not an insider a cover is what you notice you know and yeah. I remember looking in a downbeat or a jazz times i don't remember when and there was a cecil taylor album it was in the brewing luminous and the way that font looked on the cover i thought that's a great title that's probably a great record you know just the way the album looked and of course that now is the title of your book mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know so did you also have that reaction to that cover at some point yeah, there's that's one that's actually been through a couple of different iterations. And yeah, there are some really strong, you know, some really strong covers. One of my favorites of his is uh, the album he did on MPS, Live in the Black Forest, where it's like mm -hmm. a, a dark brown cover and it's just got a really great photo of him on the cover. You know, it's just really uh, like a really nice image, like a very powerful, you know, mm -hmm. image. But... Uh, well, there's there's not so many uh, people like Reed Miles around. That's really true. You know, it's those great Blue Note records are collectible partly because of the covers. Yeah, yeah. So when you see like kind of blue repackaged with a different cover, you have to wonder what are they thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because that's the that's the first one that I bought was the the mid '80s cassette version where the photo was from like 1969 or something. You know, yeah. the the original jazz classics reissue of the album. You know, and and so I you know I had no knowledge you know i didn't know what it was i was just like okay you know this is this is this album cover you know but uh i would say that i would say that the cover and the title speak to a little bit of my 
personal disbelief that I'm even on Blue Note, that I even <laughs> that I even have a jazz career. You know, it, it all seems like I'm just beating the odds some in some mysterious way, and I shouldn't take myself too seriously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did you choose the the players on this record and what goes into that decision making like obviously when you you know when you can get somebody that's like a legend to play with you like i remember i talked to jeremy pelt and he said you know i i booked ron carter for an album because i could you know so like you know you've done the you did your last record with larry grenadier and jack DeJanette. so why did you choose the guys on the new record what what did you want from them? What did they bring? You know, talk me through it. Right. So, you know, with the Bad Plus, it was three peers who were very strong voices. And we were meeting in the middle. And uh, I still believe that was innovative music. It's strictly in the sense that no one sounded like that before. And you can recognize us anytime. A, classic bad I'm not classic an older bad plus record where I'm playing piano on it you know it comes on you know it's the bad plus it's very distinctive that was always my first agenda since I was very young make music that was fresh then I get get a little older I have that surprise success and what I felt was I really need to learn how to play jazz Of course, I was playing jazz, but at the same time, there's a lot of stuff I needed to work on. And so I immediately started trying to get close to Billy Hart, to Paul Motion, to Tootie Heath, to then eventually Ron Carter and then, you know, Jack DeJanette. And each, each of those occasions, I, in a sense, am trying to frame them in the best way I can. Several people told me they thought Jack DeJanette sounded amazing on the eternal verities um and the rest of that record and i think it's true like i got some primo jack dijonette you know late period jack is on my record and so th- the record's a success as far as i'm concerned um you, you might think that these guys sound great on every record but it's actually maybe not true i do think the leader has to have a certain kind of interest and compassion to sort of make it happen the best way you know Mm -hmm. several people told several people told me that ron carter on um the purity the turf that that was some of the best ron they'd heard in the recent years and i don't know if that's true or not ron's on about a hundred records a month but i do know it's incredible ron on that record so at the same time the greats die off or get less available and at some point I have to sort of stake out a trio with younger people and so technically acceptable is the first one of those in a way ever that I'm playing with two people that are younger than me now Thomas Morgan is a true genius and he's incredibly in demand and I uh, don't know how much longer he'll be playing with me because he's a genuine superstar in the world of improvised music and kush is also you know he's a regular in the melissa aldana quartet which is seeming to be one of the busiest groups in jazz so i can't really 
know if this is going to be a working trio for a long time. But what's true is I have this nice record with them. We're playing the Vanguard and we're doing two back-to-back European tours. So this is actually, honestly, the first time, Phil, that I'm playing with people a bit younger than me, playing my music and sort of going that route. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's... Well, I mean, is there a tipping point where you become the guy that people, that young players seek out? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I uh, because if I you're also... if you're a twenty year old coming up in jazz school now, you know, if you're at New England Conservatory or if you're at you know Berkeley or the New School or whatever, I would imagine that the bad plus records would be part of the you know language part of the stuff that gets passed from student to student the same way like kurt rosenwinkel or mark turner are or chris potter are influences on younger players you know i would imagine that your work is probably reaching you know young jazz nerds well i'd like to i'd like to think so phil but i I don't know if that's true. You know, actually, at the last lesson of the year I, I taught at NEC, the topic of arranging um, like a modern day pop tune came up. And I, I showed something and I sort of confessed, well, I mean, I, you know, I guess this is the thing I used to, to do in the Bad Plus. And the student had never heard of the Bad Plus. Mm. He'd been studying with me for two years and had never heard of the Bad Plus. So, you know, you just never know, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything is ephemeral. But I, one thing I should just say about Thomas and Cush is we played a gig. Uh, we played a gig at the Jazz Gallery in New York, and I immediately felt chemistry. I didn't just pick their names because I liked the way they played. We'd actually, there was a little bit of something there. And Cush, I had heard him at a gig, not playing with Melissa. I mean, I heard him with Melissa. He sounded great, but I heard him playing like a, at a jam session with more playing the standard repertoire. Mm -hmm. And the standard repertoire is the hardest thing to do well. And it's the hardest thing to do with personality. It's, in my opinion, it's, it's much easier to play this sort of modern day thorny, even eighth note jazz than to play blues and rhythm changes. So Kush was playing that, and I was like, wow, Kush sounds great doing this. And then I put him on there with Thomas, and I just thought, okay, this is a vibe. This, is, this, is, this has gem and chemistry. Also, because he was open to us. Thomas is open to everybody. I don't think there's a musician Thomas Morgan couldn't make music with. He could play with a hillbilly band, and he sounded incredible with Masabumi Kikuchi. I mean, this guy is a true almost a savant, a perfect musician. Um, Kush, I, Kush is on a scene that I guess I wasn't sure maybe if it would connect easily to me or Thomas, but it was a fit right away. And I'm really looking forward to getting to play with both of them so much next year. Mm -hmm. So what was the actual process? Because, I mean, I've talked to people, you know, like David Murray, for example, who likes to put a band into a club for a week and then go into the studio, you know, or I've heard the same thing from Ambrose Akinmusery, who did, you know, a jazz, uh, a winter jazz fest performance, and then the next day went into the studio and recorded his last album for Blue Note. 
you know, so what was what was your methodology for getting together with these guys prior to actually recording? Uh you know, we actually did two different sessions. I started with one date with them, and it went okay, and I thought about it for three months, and then I deleted all those files and did a new session. Mm. And it really wasn't, it wasn't the way they played. They were perfect, but I thought I actually have something else to state, state here myself. And perhaps it was because there wasn't more warm-up gigs. We did the one gig but that was it so i would have it would have been nice perhaps to do a week and then do the record but that's not how this worked mm -hmm. and the thing that i noticed was that the pieces on the record are fairly short there's a lot of them 13 tracks and most of them are two and a half to like three and a half minutes so what uh you know talk to me about that choice is it just you know because because you're obviously someone very comfortable with the piano trio you know language so it's not that you like run out of ideas pretty quickly or anything like that so <laughs> you know tell me why why the why the tracks are as short as they are what the artistic reasoning is behind it you know it's for both sessions, we recorded so many things. And the way it tends to work is you just put the best stuff on the record. So it was a little less like, you know, I set out to record short pieces. In fact, I was appalled at first. When I looked at the track list, I was like, wait a minute, this stuff is only two minutes long. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was like, I was kind of surprised. But I will say in my defense, is that I think all the tunes you can sit and listen to quite carefully and sort of like you would listen to a pop song or something that's produced. Like they all have a, a strong narrative. Everybody's playing out. You know, there's, there can be filler on jazz records. I mean, it's a, it's a bunch of seven minute songs, unless you're John Coltrane himself, you know, it can be a little difficult, I think. Uh, to, to really have the focus oriented right on a record. Live is different, you know, mm -hmm. live, live you stretch, that's fine, it's, it's great. But if you're just, if you're going into the studio, then I do think uh, there's no reason not to keep it short if, it, if that's appropriate, you know. The first thing, Conundrum, was specifically written to be like very short. Uh, someone advised me that to help sell a tour or whatever it'd be good to have a video and i fucking hate making videos in the studio partly because improvising is vulnerable and the minute you put on the cameras like the magic leaves i've been in the situation many times i'm not the only person who would say this and i really didn't want to ask thomas and kush to be like on camera for the session but so I said, all right, I'll write one short piece that's completely written out that we will just video like a music video. And then there's this sort of dorky little conundrum piece with this dorky little video that is going to make me a TikTok star. Phil, I don't know if you've heard that, but Ethan Iverson is <laughs> going to be the ne next jazz TikTok star because of conundrum. On the other hand, 
the album ends with the sonata, which is like 15 minutes long, I think, altogether. The, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that piece. You know, is it is it your right. first well, sonata? Like, what you know? Yeah. It's... <clears throat> As I said about the Bad Plus, I always wanted to make new music. Music that hasn't been done before. And it seems to be totally obvious that myself and all of my contemporaries and the younger people are moving towards more and more notation and comp you know, formal composition within the realm of jazz. You know, mm-hmm. uh, with all due respect to the great players today, there's no more Joe Hendersons. There's no more John Coltrane's. What we have is excellent small group jazz, but but, you know, very few people who are like a a solid rock that you bounce everything else off of in terms of just playing tunes, you know, and improvising. So Bad Plus was in a way was about that. Bad Plus was about formal organization. And I've had a lot to do with so-called classical music. You know, my mentor, Billy Hart, would say jazz is America's classical music. It's uh, the nomenclature game is rife and exhausting, but I've decided that I'm just going to call things jazz and classical music in interviews because it's a the shorthand I can deal with. Uh, but I've, I ha- I've had a lot to do with classical music and written out scores, and it's sort of sunk in. And then recently, I've started writing, relatively recently last five years and it's been going very very easily it's been very going very very quickly i start hearing the tunes i start writing them down i start singing them my own tunes as i'm walking around for these formal compositions and to me that must mean i'm now a composer and i like the tension of putting a fully notated piano sonata on blue note records that has definitely never been done before so if nothing else, I'm satisfying one of my basic requirements is, you know, to be sort of doing something new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The piece is just like Beethoven or Haydn or Mozart structurally. It's a sonata and allegro, then a slow, like a pretty slow movement, and then a rondo to finish. Um, <clears throat> I've been doing more of this, and as, you know, my 50s into my dotage roll on, I suspect that I will be uh, visible as a composer, perhaps almost as much as a performer. That's, it's funny because that's something that came up when I was working on this book about Cecil, because what I gradually realized is the degree to which his recordings like the live recordings, it's less noticeable, but it's still noticeable once you start really paying attention. But the studio albums, the you know, the relatively few studio albums that he made are really, really composed. Like there's there's this great quote that I have from Alan Silva who played bass on unit structures. And he says, you don't come up with unit structures at a jam session. We rehearsed that for four months. You know, like every day we rehearsed that piece. And so, you know, it's 
And once you listen, you can really hear these, you know, his compositions were like these little melodic cells, almost riffs, you know, but once you hear them, you can't unhear them, you know, and he reuses things. He repurposes riffs all the time and gives them a new title, you know, puts them into a slightly different context or whatever, but they're like these little fanfare-like melodies that he throws out there and then Jimmy Lyons will pick it up and run with it, you know, or whoever. But there's real composition at work there, you know, and it's it's kind of fascinating to, it was kind of fascinating for me to confront that and to put it up against the reputation that he's had for decades as just this like tidal wave of sound, you know, it's like, no, if you listen to one of his albums five or six times in a row, it falls you know it it falls into place because it's almost like there is so much music going on a lot of the time with him that you can't process it all at once i mean that's certainly what happened to me the first time i saw him play live at the vanguard in like 97 like i just sat there and you know got hit by it i was like a toddler standing in like a wave pool at an amusement park you know but after a while you're like yeah okay now i hear it now i see what's going on you know and it uh well i i really look forward to reading your book and learning more about some of the details of what you're talking about but i think we can both agree that the phrase free jazz is one of the worst names because (laughs) all the avatars of the movement play exactly their own repertoire Mm -hmm. exactly Exactly. I mean, I'm not saying they don't improvise, but it's at the same time, Ornette's repertoire on the alto saxophone or Albert Eiler's repertoire or Cecil Taylor's repertoire or anyone at that level, it's improvisation is secondary. It's not primary. It's secondary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, even even a guy like Charles Gale, who passed away this year, you know, mm-hmm. wasn't and same with Pharaoh Sanders. I, I remember I saw Pharaoh the last time in like the winter of 2019. He played at Iridium with Jonathan Blake on drums. And I don't remember who else uh, on piano and bass. But he was not doing the screaming Tyrannosaurus, you know, saxophone thing all night. He was mostly playing... In a, in a mode that reminded me of like prestige era Coltrane. He was show, he was there, 80 some years old, there to show you that he was an absolute master of the tenor saxophone. You know, he was like, wow. make, he was like, I can make this thing do anything I want, you know? And it was amazing to watch because there were, you know, there were a few people that had come in obviously hoping to hear the screams and stuff like that, but he was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to play hard, you know? Mm. And it was incredible. Oh, I wish I'd seen that. That sounds like a magnificent night. Yeah. It was, it was like straight fifties Coltrane stuff. And I was like, man, nobody, you know, nobody does this anymore, you know? So you mentioned using quotations and stuff like that on titles. And I was kind of curious about, you know, about how you came up with like the titles for the pieces on you know on this album i mean obviously there's you know some outside tunes you know some tunes that you brought in killing me softly around midnight you know but the other ones like it's fine to decline 
uh, the feeling is mutual, you know, who are you really, which I think is being re uh, issued as a single. So, you know, talk talk me through the, the titles there and what they relate to with regard to the actual pieces. Sure, I will, I will reveal what I think I am allowed to reveal, you know, perhaps some secrets go to my grave, but um, who are you really is something that Dexter Gordon said. He said this to someone as he was leaving the club. Who are you? Who are you really? And I heard that story and I thought that is a, that's a pretty great thing to say. <laughs> um, victory is assured a la brev, you know, a la brev means into which the piece is not, but somehow like tempo, I don't know. If you dance a foxtrot, there's a way that you're dancing in two. Uh, do you know the reference, Victory is Assured? It's uh, Stanley Crouch, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Your favorite writer, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I was buddies with Stanley and uh, missed him a lot. And it's a, a straight up kind of jump blues. You know, it's, it's like Count Basie. Mm -hmm. It's my version of Count Basie. And I don't know if Stanley would have liked it, but I realized after I was listening to it that if I could have played him a piece like, okay, this is what I'm doing in, in 2023, this is what I would have played him. And I do think, I like that phrase because optimism, optimism is a tonic. You've got to sort of wake up and attack the day with joy in your heart and belief that there's a future. You know, there's no point in being any other way. And Stanley, for all of his incredible problems, he knew that too. And he signed every every letter and every essay. You know, victory is victory is assured. And I, I thought that was I thought that was great. I still think it's great. Yeah. Um, technically acceptable. Well, that's again sort of like um, a, a, you know, a Count Basie kind of thing. It's a medium tempo swing piece. And again, I, I actually sort of think that's the hardest thing to do on a technical level in some ways. Now, it's not about playing the most number of notes or something, but it is, it's, there isn't so much of it around in the contemporary jazz circuit. Mm -hmm. You know, people, you can, they're doing it everywhere on the planet in another kind of less visible way. You know, it's part of like the underneath discourse or something. It's on the radio or, uh, at, for, at Christmas time. You know, there's things, there's people that play that way still, but in terms of like whoever's on Blue Note or whatever, you know, whoever's being talked about in the jazz magazines, I don't, there isn't so much like medium tempo rhythm changes. And I enjoy that tension. I enjoy being, I'm the guy who's actually playing medium tempo rhythm changes. And that is technically acceptable. Yeah, it's interesting because that was something that jumped out at me when I was listening to the record is your playing has this kind of, I connect it in my head with some of the other players that I feel are doing consciously pre-McCoy Tyner styles of jazz piano. Right. You know, like you, Jason Moran, Aaron Deal, you know. I feel like you guys are doing consciously pre-McCoy sort of piano. And and I'm wondering, you know, if that was something, if that was a 
a goal going into this record or if that was just how it shakes out? Well, I would say that's, that's a goal of a lifetime for me. I've always wanted, I've always avoided that language. Uh, not, not as a student, I, I practice McCoy Tyner solos. I teach McCoy, I've written about McCoy. It has nothing to do with me not thinking McCoy is valuable. If anything, it's the other, it's the other way. It's like, it's so special. There can be a, a appropriation of it that I f find a little superficial. Whether it's superficial or not, it's ever present, or it used to be ever present anyway. In the, certainly in the 70s and the 80s, they went to town on that big time in mm -hmm. jazz piano. So, so, you know, I was sort of like, okay, I'm not going to do any of that. And uh, I would say Jason and Aaron, you're right, that they've also sort of agreed I don't need to play that way. Yeah. I, well, I mean, Jason is explicitly, you know, he and I have talked about this. He's explicitly coming out of Fats Waller and Jackie Byard and that stuff. You know, and then Aaron is like this, like redeeming cocktail piano for the 21st century or something. You know, in in a very a very fascinating way, and moving and blending jazz and classical in a very fascinating way. You know, so just an argument that Cecil Taylor was the end of the line. Like you can't get further out than Cecil. Mm -hmm. That's the final conclusion. So after you take it all the way there, what you're left with is assembling the past. So Aaron and Jason and I are very interested in very old jazz. And the 70s and 80s pianists, there are some exceptions. Stanley Cowell comes to mind. There must be some others. But uh, they tended to feel like the 60s jazz people had it figured out. That was it. McCoy, Herbie, Chick, Woody Shaw, Joe Henderson, John Coltrane, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, Ron Carter, that was it. And a whole swath of jazz was made, excellent jazz, was made with that as the primary reference. At some point, that becomes like you just can't find anything new to shake out of that box. So what's left? Well, okay, what, what about, what did they do in 1920? what they do in 1930. Is it still fresh? Turns out the people you're talking about, we clearly have an agreement that there's actually something fresh still there to be found. Yeah, that's, that's one of the other things that I think is, is really uh, gonna fascinate people in the book that I have is the album Silent Tongues that Cecil recorded live at Montreux in 74, solo mm -hmm. piano record. It was one part of a full day of solo piano concerts, and he was the last person on stage. And the three people before him were Earl Hines, Jay McShann, and Roland Hanna. Wow. So it's like he was literally fitting himself into the tradition that day, you know, like showing there's a lineage, you know, and I'm part of it. And all four performances were recorded and released on, you know, either Black Lion or Arrest of Freedom. So, like, you can actually program the entire day of shows for yourself and check it out. And it's it's pretty incredible to hear, like, you know, Earl Hines playing really old stride stuff and Jay McShann singing the blues and doing, you know, jump blues solo piano stuff. 
and then you know Hannah kind of modernizing that tradition and then Cecil comes in and does his you know his thing which still when you listen to it there's a ton of like you know Harlem stride piano in what he does but he filters it through himself you know is so. the Roland Hannah is that Perugia that yeah record? yeah that's the one I, I'm looking forward to listening to those four in a row from that day that sounds like a great project to, to check that out um, so you feel Silent Tongues has more of that than other Cecil Taylor solo records? Yeah, I mean, there's, like, Air Above Mountains is very much him in concerto mode, you know, mm -hmm. and the Willisau concert from 2000 is one of my favorites because he's playing that giant Bosendorfer and he's hitting the low notes that'll, like, bounce things off your shelves, you know. Mm -hmm. And, but yeah, Silent Tongues is very much like a, you know, him placing himself into the lineage of jazz piano. You know, I don't remember hearing Silent Tongues offhand, so I'll have to go back and listen to that. The, yeah. the, only, the only Cecil record solo I listened to much was For Olam, or Olim. Mm. Yeah. Soul Note, which is a really nice record. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that was, that was like a very dark period for him which is interesting because it was right when it was either right before yeah i think it was right before jimmy lyons passed away and then it was released afterwards but he was like too sick to come to europe for the concerts they had planned uh -huh. so there's a lot of like you know personal stuff going on there well in terms of underrated players jimmy lyons is way up there that guy was so great yeah yeah wow Jimmy Lyons. So you also put out the album uh, Saturday this year with Vinny Sparazza and Michael Formonic. Was that a one-off or is that a band that you think will be making more records? I love playing with Vinny and, and Mike. Uh, I don't think we'll do too much more, sadly. Um, also, Formonic moved to uh, Portugal. Oh, okay. Uh, but you know, the, well, it was fun to do that at, at Rudy Van Gelder's. I don't, I hadn't, I'd maybe been there a little bit, but this was the first time, like like making a trio date at Van Gelder's. You know, it was, it was a memorable moment. Hmm. Vin, of course, I share a lot with Vinny in terms of you know writing about the music and all that. Yeah, he's he's doing some really interesting work with that lately. It's it's been pretty uh, pretty fascinating. You know, I'm I'm learning a lot by reading his stuff. So yeah, me too. <laughs> so yeah, you've done a you've done a lot of interviews with older artists over the years. Is there anybody that you still want to talk to that you haven't yet? Well, I asked Al Foster a couple times, and he always said no. <laughs> yeah. um, Buster, I did partial interview with Buster Williams. I should get back to that. There are other people. Sometimes people suggest people. I there are certain people I don't I don't think are accessible or or. Are, a good fit for me mm. but if Al Foster would finally say yes that would that would mean something yeah I had an interesting conversation with Buster Williams he told me a lot about what a bass player needs to give a singer because he does a lot of work with singers and has you know has done for decades and so it was very interesting to you know to get that perspective from him because he says you know it's not even that it's not even as important what the the pianist is doing for the singer but you know the bassist and the singer have a very tight bond on stage 
according to him. There's some really be beautiful videos of him with Sarah Vaughn, you know, and other singers, just fantastic. So you are, you're teaching and you do the theater and dance type of work. Um, without getting into numbers, obviously, but like what percentage of your income derives from recording and touring and would it be financially sustainable on its own? Like we want to kind of let the kids out there down easy, but you know, I'm curious about the, the economics of jazz. Right. Well, um, in terms of working with Mark Morris, that I did that before I had a jazz career. And Mark is a huge influence on me. Uh, I've often said that I wouldn't have been able to play in the Bad Plus if I hadn't worked with Mark Morris. He really showed me the wider world of art. I was such a diehard jazz nerd, which I still am, obviously. But um, if you'd met me in my mid-20s, <laughs> which would have been probably pretty shocking. Anyway, so Mark took me under his wing and showed me the world in a way. I owe him more than I can say. And also, I adore his work. I think he's a true genius. So I, I wouldn't say that I've turned down big tours to work with Mark Morris, but I fit Mark Morris in my schedule. He has priority artistically. Mm -hmm. He has priority artistically. Um, also, working with Dan Sickenbotham, I mean, I sort of really believe in this I like working with dance. I don't think I could have written a dance sonata. I mean, sorry, by piano sonata on the Blumen record if I hadn't done so much with dance. Uh, that's where more composition has happened. And in the case of working with Mark, you know, these two big pieces I do with him, they concern either the Beatles or Burt Bacharach. Mm -hmm. And they're both, they're both things that I care a lot about, but it'd be sort of inconceivable I would have a gig playing either of those repertoires outside of this very specific elite circumstance where I'm in charge of the aesthetic and I get to sort of make a statement with these legendary 60s pop icons. As I've written endlessly over and over again, Mr. Backrack came to the dress rehearsal of the Mark Morris piece with his music and he told me that he really liked what I did with his music. I didn't write it for him. You can't think about the composer when you're doing this sort of work. You, you know, you have to do it for yourself and for the art. But it actually did really mean something to me that Bert gave me his blessing. So, okay, but I understand your question about the economics. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this much. When the pandemic hit, uh, I was very lucky to be, I felt associated with a few institutions uh, New England Conservatory and uh, Mark Morris Dance Group. But, uh, yeah, I quit the Bad Plus. That was, I'm making less money than I am was in the Bad Plus days. But in terms of gigging, somehow, I guess between playing with Billy Hart and enough other things, including stuff on my own, it's been sort of okay. Um, my Substack actually is paying me some money at this point. I'm going to <laughs> declare it. I'm going to declare it on my taxes this year, which I don't think I've really done before. It was, it was not really worth mentioning uh, to the tax man, but this year I'd better declare it. 
yeah, I'm in the same position. It's re it's very strange. Like Burning Ambulance was kind of tootling along for for years, you know, just as a WordPress blog, and then I I turned it into a Substack newsletter about a year ago, and they actually grabbed onto it and promoted it on their front page, which got me hundreds of subscribers, you know, and now, so now I have like 20, almost 2,600 subscribers, which is crazy. It really makes a difference if you're trying to put this stuff together. Mm-hmm. Vinny Sparrows and I joke, it's our, it's our hustle. Like everyone's got to have a hustle. And if you're asking me like what to say to the like jazz kids or whatever, I would say uh, everybody has a hustle. So the last thing, I guess, is we discussed a couple of other players, Jason, you know, Jason and Aaron, but there are a couple other people who I think are your generation or slightly, you know, the, the generation after you that I was also wondering, you know, if you're listening and what you have, you know, what your thoughts yeah. are. And uh, those would be Aaron Parks and Sullivan Fortner, who just put out a really, really interesting record. And the guy that I think, I see him backing old, you know, older players, but I don't see him doing much on his own. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are about Jeb Patton. Right. Well, um, I should maybe just go back a second and say that Jason Moran is really my idol. Like, I just love Jason. You know, of, of my peers, he's the one I really defer to, I would say. You know, I felt that since the first time I heard him. And he's now in a quite a visible position working with big institutions. And that stuff's a grind, and it's hard to do well. If I may be blunt, I think it's very hard to do black music well in these sort of old-school white-bread institutions without, without making it a huge, like, rejection of the state. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. that's one way to do it. You could just, you know, you can just show up and do a huge protest but if you're not doing that i actually think it's difficult to sort of like deal with hip-hop and jazz and everything else in the context of this sort of old school performing arts group and whatever jason does is he's always killing it i love it and his playing is immaculate i think he's one of the best solo pianists actually um and so anyway i just got to say that about jason now aaron is my buddy uh also because we both really love European classical music. He's much better than me. I mean, it's, I can't really talk about myself as a classical player in the same breath as Aaron Deal. He, I've seen him play Gershwin concertos very, very well with orchestras. He also now, I'm thrilled that he's playing with Taishan Sori because he's playing this sort of more avant-garde thing, and his piano technique is so refined, he's bringing quite a different angle to it. You know, a lot of the rest of us, I'll throw myself under the bus as well. You know, we we go in there and we're, we're can be quite quite a lot of rough edges playing that avant-garde style. But Aaron still has this elegance, and I think it's really exciting that he's playing with Taishan, and I think it's going to get even more exciting, you know. Part of what we're doing is we're doing a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. No one of us so far, we just do one thing. It's like Aaron is playing concertos and playing deconstructed standards with Taishan Sori. That would have been unthinkable at any other time in the music's history. Jason Moran is playing 
phenomenal improvised solo piano concerts and also in charge of Kennedy Center Jazz. It's really a sort of unique moment that way. You know, whatever I'm trying to do, I'm writing, composing, all this sort of stuff. It's, it's like, that's clearly the, it's the age of the polymath or something like that. Jeb Patton is a beautiful guy, kind-hearted soul, who's a brilliant straight-ahead player. And uh, he probably doesn't get enough recognition for his gifts because he's not doing stuff that um, usually makes the critical eye or whatever like that. You know, he, I can tell you a secret about Jeb is that he's also very interested in European classical music and writes some preludes. I don't know if he's gotten to sonatas yet, but I'm definitely planning to share my sonata with Jeb Patton because he's someone that will understand what I'm trying to do in a way that maybe some people wouldn't. Jeb also studied with Roland Hanna. Roland Hanna is an important link in that chain because Roland Hanna, more than many of his contemporaries, was trying to bridge classical music and jazz music as early as whatever, 1968 or whatever his mm. first records were. Aaron Parks is got a, you know, he's got a brilliant imagination. I, I can't say I know like all of Aaron's records exactly, but the solo record on ECM, I think is notably strong. Well, I can't remember what it's called offhand. Arborescent sure or something like that. Yeah, something relating yeah, yeah, to yeah. trees. Yeah. 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 That, that was a, that was a strong entry in a catalog that's stacked with great great ecm records i joked with him he should have called the album in the tradition <laughs> you know just like a young lion in 1992 because making a solo piano in ecm there's a lot of heritage there and i think he pulled it off beautifully i know he's playing a lot with little big i saw little big and it wasn't my favorite because i grew up with listening to kurt rosenwinkel and in fact i'm even on kurt's album hardcore and i guess little big is like many other groups on the Brooklyn jazz scene in the last 20 years, I feel like they haven't totally sorted out being different enough from the Kurt Rosenwinkel model. Yeah, I saw them uh, at Rockwood Music Hall, and I liked it because it was very much, like the term jazz rock means one specific thing to people. But I feel like they were able to take rock compositional dynamics and make it work you know and make the solos arise organically out of that mm. so it's like it's jazz it, it's jazz rock but the rock is late 90s early 2000s indie rock rather than you know whatever was inspiring the fusion players of 69 to like 74 you know what i mean yeah it's not really fair to ask me to comment on this sort of stuff because i I work so hard at appropriating those things myself in Bad Plus. You know? <laughs> so I don't know. I just, uh, I saw Aaron's Quartet with Ben Solomon, Ben Street, and Jabali this summer. I thought it was really cool. And I know they have a record coming out. I'll have to see Little Big again. Yeah, yeah. And then the last guy was uh, was Sullivan, who is, you know, who, I don't oh. know if you've heard his solo record yet. Well, I don't even need to. I mean, he's blowing everyone away, and justifiably so. Um his technical command is probably the, the benchmark all these years later is Art Tatum. Yeah. And I, I, I was talking to Sullivan. This is years ago now. I don't even know how he got the job. But he was teaching jazz piano at Oberlin. He must have been still in his 20s, but he was teaching. And I said, well, what, what the heck are you teaching them? And he said, 
Well, I just give him a tape of Art Tatum and say, you got it. And I guess he has done that himself. He's listened to Art Tatum and said, okay, I, I want to be the next guy. And he, I guess he's doing it. Yeah, it's interesting. Tatum, there are, there are some guys, you know, who have disappeared to a certain degree, you know. And I, like we were talking about, you know, the school, of, there's before McCoy and after. And Tatum has kind of disappeared. Errol Garner has disappeared. Although, there, you know, there was like a big reissue program of like a dozen Errol Garner albums that came out in the last few years. But I don't think it took you know, like people didn't pay attention the way they might have. And well, I, I mean, I think you're talking also, just to be clear, you're talking about what the players are doing. I bet if we went on YouTube right now and looked at the view count for Errol Garner versus whoever or Art Tatum versus whoever, they have a lot of views because that's truly timeless music that reaches a lot of people. There's an aspect to their thing, which is really like popular music. You don't need to know a thing about anything to groove to Errol Garner. And every classical pianist in the world has heard Art Tatum with, and, and with disbelief. <laughs> I guarantee you, at every conservatory in the world, they get drunk on a Friday night and listen to Art Tatum and just go like, what the heck? Because Rachmaninoff and Horowitz are on record as saying, what the heck, when it comes to Tatum. <laughs> so, but in terms of the players playing like that, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess it's outdated, but it's also... I think people don't want to be that forthcoming. Emotionally, it's very forthright. Mm -hmm. And jazz, jazz has evolved into a place where it's not so forthright. That's true. And that's, you know, which brings us back around because that's one of the things that I hear in you is that big chords, big melodies, hooks, for lack of a better word, you know. I, I mentioned Mark Morris being an influence. He says things like, Dance isn't for everybody, but it should be for anybody. And I do, and also, you know, Martha Graham said this thing, you should, you know, light a fire that, that anyone can see. You know, don't reach out to an audience, light a fire that anyone can see. Mm. I, I think Cecil Taylor has something that if, when you were in the room with it, you knew if something important was happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think he had a commercial bone in his body exactly but at the same time you couldn't miss cecil taylor yeah you know? yeah and uh you couldn't miss then if you want to get more conservative you can't miss Thelonious monk you can't miss errol garner and i like to think that the bad plus had some of that you know there are a lot of non-musicians at bad plus shows and now that i'm off on my own and playing my little piano trio gigs with 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 much less glamour and frankly i'm not so interested in communicating quite so directly i do want to keep something that if you're not a jazz fan you can come to my trio gig and dig it because there is a you know if someone says jazz is really an insider music today they certainly aren't wrong i can't even follow what's going on and i'm a jazz player <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's there's definitely a you know a need for players to extend a hand, you know, and I to to the audience, and I think a big part of it, and you know, something that would really help would because it changes the way the audience behaves would be to take out the tables. If there were no tables in jazz clubs, if you had to stand there to listen, like you know, like at Rockwood or someplace. It changes how you listen. 
Well, I have an intermediate step. I love that step. And I did that in the Bad Plus. We love doing that. But the intermediate step is getting music off, sheet music off the stands. Mm. You can't find a Miles Davis, John Coltrane, or Thelonious Monk video where there's sheet music on the stands. I don't know when it got allowed that everybody was just reading music all the time at the Village Vanguard, but, you know, that's a real disconnect between the musicians and the audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I'm playing my own music, I don't have any sheet music. I gave up at some point trying to enforce it in a global sense on all the things I do. If I play a little trio gig with Vinny playing his music, I don't memorize the music. I probably should, like, do all that, but he doesn't. I mean, and no one has no one has memorizes in that scene. Everyone's playing from charts, so I don't want to stick out too much. I'll just read the charts with everybody else. But I do think it would, would be healthier if we all never had any sheet music on the stands. Yeah, it's funny because I remember that was something that Oren said to me when he came in to the Bad Plus. Was you said, I can't believe I have to learn all these songs. He, yeah, exactly. We never got to play in a rock band. We're piano players. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine a fucking rock band with sheet music? <laughs> the Rolling Stones gets on stage. Do you have the chart? I mean, what are we fucking talking about here? <laughs> yeah. Yep. I was like Oren when I first was playing with Bad Plus. I was like, oh, I guess uh, there isn't music. And that's probably one reason I also, I'm writing a piano sonata where we played the Rite of Spring. If, if there's real, there are things you have to have sheet music for because there's, thousands and thousands of written notes mm -hmm. if you're playing a 15 minute piano sonata i mean most if it's new people everybody uses sheet music because it's just too hard rite of spring in the bat plus that was the only thing i ever used sheet music for it's 45 minutes of written pitches hard pitches yeah. all right i use the music you know but, but dave king didn't use the music well listen Thank you so much for talking to me, man. It's good to see you. And, you know, it's good It's good to hear, you know, new music. You know, it's, uh, it's a very interesting record. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it's, uh, how it's received, you know. I, I, we didn't mention the theremin. Did you, did you notice that piece? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because at first I thought it was actually a voice. I thought it was... Right, uh, that's what everybody says. Yeah, I thought it was a vocalist. And then I was like, wait, what? No. So that's the other thing I know is a debut from Blue Note is a gigantic theremin solo. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of, actually? I, I remember having this thought when I heard the record was there's a Bugs Bunny cartoon where he it takes place in like, you know, King Arthur's time or something. And he grabs a hold of the singing sword. And when he pulls it out of the stone or whatever, it begins singing. And I think that was a theremin as well. And that was what I was Probably. immediately reminded of, right, was right, the right. singing sword from the Bugs Bunny cartoon. So I thought that was, I thought that was really cool. So. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah.